All right. Well, welcome to another special episode of Sokka's Is That So? Today, I'm joined by a very special guest who I've been trying to get on for a couple of weeks. So I'm glad that we managed to get some time, but I'll be speaking to Sasha, uh, Sasha Pilch, who is a principal at Fin Capital, which is a venture capital firm focused on early stage fintech investing. Thanks for joining us today, Sasha. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Sokka. Fantastic. Well, why don't we dive straight into it? You've had a very fascinating background. We're both here in New York City, which I like to believe is the fintech capital of the world um, and combats London quite a bit. Uh, but you're kind of relatively new to the venture capital space. Uh, so kind of walk us through that transition, uh, going from an operator and we'll kind of walk through your background, but from an operator into VC and why you made that transition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have only been in this role for three weeks. Um, so previous to this, I spent like the first 10 years of my career working for large banks. Um, I'm Australian, so I worked for the big banks in Australia, CBA and Westpac. And I also lived in London and worked for City and Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, after like 10 years of working for big banks, I really started to get frustrated with the like lack of innovation and speed and you know all those things that just come with massive organizations um and I started actually <clears throat> in a role within the innovation department of the bank that was looking at fintechs that they wanted to either acquire or partner with and that's when I really started to get excited about fintech um, but nothing in Australia was like exciting me too much. The banking system isn't as fragmented as it is here in the US. Um, so I made the transition over to New York and took a role at a company called Quovo, which was then acquired by Plaid. Um, then uh, worked at Ramp as their first salesperson, Pinwheel as their sales lead. Um, and I decided to make the jump into venture um, for two reasons. One, I can add a lot of value to portfolio companies because I do have the operator background and Fin Capital very much has that as a value add. A lot of the people at Fin Capital are ex-operators. Um, the other reason that I wanted to make the jump is the world needs more female VCs. So um I was asked to make the opening remarks at the San Francisco FinTech retreat earlier this year. And I talked about the reason for the gender inequality issue in our industry is because the majority of VCs are male. They'll then consciously or unconsciously fund male founders who will put males on their boards and senior exec teams. And so it follows. So more female VCs is a way to combat that problem. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I wanted to touch on sort of the operational side of things, which you mentioned, and then we'll, we'll come, come back to the sort of uh, gender side of things. But why do you think um, it's important for VCs to have operational experience? I have some too from my QuickBooks days and all that, but it sounds like your value add is the operational experience that you have. But why do you think that's important for a VC to have as opposed to someone that just knows the numbers and, you know, IRRs and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so when you were talking about um, Fin Capital being an early stage VC firm, it's actually full life cycle. So we have four vehicles 
uh, pre-seed seed fund, uh, early stage fund where we do series A, B, a growth equity fund, and we also have a SPAC. And so our ethos is that we will get in early with companies and really help them succeed and graduate to that next level. And then we'll participate in the following rounds. And the best way to do that is to add a lot of value in terms of helping them with their sales, business development, marketing, helping them hire great talent. Um, our LPs are also all large banks and large insurance companies, and therefore it's a distribution network for the fintech companies that we invest in. So another way that we're really helping them succeed and get to the next level. Fantastic. And I guess in terms of the biggest gap that you see these early stage companies have, uh, you know, whether it's pre-seed or seed, uh, what do you think is the biggest operational gap that they have that they rely on VCs for, or they could use a lot more help with? Because, I mean, you're coming from that space, um, and so you've been in those shoes, so you, you could probably speak to that specifically, but what do you think they need? Is it maybe having better CRM systems or just knowing who to go after in the market in terms of a target audience? Like, what, what do you think the biggest gap is for these early stage companies and maybe later stage companies too? Yeah, so um, in my opinion, and this might be biased because of, it's my experience, but I've been the first salesperson at a tech startup three times now. And I think that that is where companies really struggle. Um, so I've always taken the approach of selling through my network. And I feel that using VCs, as a means of making introductions is a great way to sell. So I would often, when I was at Ramp, um, you know, ask Founders Fund to introduce me to other companies in their portfolio that I could potentially sell to because it's a win-win-win for everyone. Um, I'm also really big on brand building and network building through events. So I've always I've hosted 86 events since I moved to New York um, and I find it like is an excellent way to get to know people to tell you know hundreds of people in one night what your company does and get the word out there and get the brand out there um, and I think hiring is like another really key place that VCs can add value because you know we have big networks and are able to recommend top talent and get them placed in the portfolio companies. Absolutely. In fact, we've met at like two or three events in New York City. So I know how big events are for you as well. Um, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, you got to get your brand out there and it's not enough to just do digital marketing or get your name out there digitally. You actually have to meet people. And I think people want to do that after the pandemic. We're so tired of being locked indoors and all that kind of stuff. But I mean, being the first sales hire at two or three startups or, you know, fintechs is a pretty big deal. Um, how, how does someone even go about you know, creating a sales function in these companies and like, what was your mindset and how did you get that up and running? Cause it's not an easy thing to do to start a sales function. You've got to train people, you've got to identify clients. Like how did you even start that? Yeah. Um, so I definitely can't take all of the credit, like the woman that has been my 
manager and mentor um, through two of those three is Lauren Crossett. She's absolutely fantastic. Um, so she was the head of fintech at Quovo. She hired me as her first sales hire. We worked extremely closely in her getting me to shadow her calls, doing role plays. We would go to Money 2020 together and like all of the big conferences. So we were very much like a, a great solid team. Then when it got to the point that, you know, I was having 15 calls a day and like we were leaving stuff on the table, it was time to scale the team. And that's when we introduced um, further reps and built the sales function to a place that it was so good that Plaid bought us for 200 million. Um, so overnight we all became Plaid employees, um, which, you know, is an excellent company. Um, it was a very well-oiled machine though, by the time I was working there for a year. And so I was excited to go and start something new. And that's when I went and joined the founding team of Ramp as the first sales hire um, and, I'm fortunate that I had excellent mentors that have been the first salesperson at the likes of HubSpot and like other companies. And um, I was able to implement a lot of the best practices that they taught me. Absolutely. I've worked in sales too. And, you know, it's such a, uh, it's a tough job, but if you get it right, it's so rewarding too. It's kind of, you know, the harder you work and the more inputs you provide, the better your outputs. And so I always focused on controlling the inputs and then the outputs hopefully take care of themselves. But actually on that note and best practice, were there any techniques or skills that you learned in sales that you thought were so valuable that you kind of carried with you through your career as a VC or just in general? Yeah, I think like there's like a number of things that led to success. I think that being really curious as a salesperson is a great way to get the deal done. Um, so like rather than talking 90% of the time, asking questions, really actively listening, and then explaining back why this service is going to be beneficial to the specific needs of the person that you're speaking to. I think that being very diligent as well. So like, you know, as a first salesperson, you do have to grind like and have, you know, 15 calls a day, a lot of days um, and be very adaptable. So like, you know, in those early stages, nothing's in place yet. So you've just got to, make stuff up as you go along and be very flexible. Um, so for example, there were times when we didn't really have enough office space at all. So I was taking calls from stairwells and um, like, you know, <laughs> doing like whatever I needed to do in order to get as many customers signed up as possible. Absolutely. I remember when I worked in sales too, I'd be in like an Uber in London on the phone um, and it'd be like a shared Uber ride. So the other person next to me would look at me like, what's this guy doing right now? And I'm like trying to sell and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but what do you think the, the difference is between uh, a great or an exceptional salesperson and then I guess an average or someone that doesn't necessarily meet their targets? Are there any characteristics or differences between them? Yes. Um, I think there's five characteristics that make a really key salesperson. So 
Uh, we already spoke about curiosity and like the fact that they can ask questions and really get to the core need of the buyer. Um, I think that another key measure is prior success. So, you know, it, have they been exceeding their quota? Like what have their numbers looked like over the last roles that they've had? Um, I think that work ethic is a big one. So like in sales, like you have to like be on top of it. If you're, you know, competing salespeople, like at your competitors are sending the follow-ups and you're taking two days to send it, then like you pretty much know you're going to lose the deal. So um, definitely like hardworking people. Um, I also think that like intelligence like is like definitely um, something that is very helpful. Um, and there's one more, sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. <laughs> like, I, uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's all right. I, I remember when I worked in sales too, there's so many different aspects. It's like your emotional IQ, your intelligence, like your ability to follow up your operational experience. Oh, yeah. There's so many different aspects. Yeah. That's it. Like, are they coachable? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a great one. That's a great one as well. Do you think you're going to have to use any of these skills as a VC? Because oftentimes people think that VCs are um, on the sort of the comfortable high throne waiting for people to throw themselves at VCs. But there might be an element of selling. And I know you're just new to this job uh, as well. But do you ever think you might use these selling skills as a VC to try and get into the best deals? Because some of the best deals are quite competitive, right? Exactly. Um, and that's what... I'm realizing like on the job now and what I'm, what I realized when I spoke to like a lot of my friends that work at other fintech VCs, um, there is so much sales in the role, whether it's selling your firm as the one that this hot founder or company should choose to have on the cap table or whether it's selling like on behalf of the company so that they can increase their sales or if it's selling to top candidates to join the company to then take it to the next level so like so much sales yeah absolutely i mean and part of that as well as getting rejected i mean they don't talk about that enough but you know part of sales is getting rejected time and time again i remember when i used to work in sales i would you know show up on people's doors um this was before i guess internet selling was a big deal um, but, you know, knock on doors and get rejected time after time. So kind of just walk us through how you dealt with rejection and did it like make you tougher, more resilient? Like how, how did you handle rejections? Yeah. Um, so my mentality is like, it's not like a personal decision that they've made like against you. Like there's so many factors at play. It could be that like there's a gap in the product and the competitors have that solution or it could be like something completely out of your control. Like there's a relationship between the CEO of the competitor and the CEO of the company that you're selling to. And um, and then there's other times like where it, where it is your fault. Like, you know, maybe if like the ball was dropped and, you know, you, you let things like fall through the cracks. My approach to dealing with that you know, sorry, you're not the vendor of choice is always to keep the relationship positive. So I am a big believer in like what goes around comes around. And I've definitely seen that in my career. Like I sold, I've sold to some companies, Quovo, Plaid, 
ramp and pinwheel. And so like, there's definitely like repeat buyers and relationships are so important. So even if I was told that I didn't win the deal, I would still say, I understand and like, please give me feedback so I can get better and that the, so the company can get better too. And let me know how I can be helpful in other ways. So I have my FinTech women community of 8,000 members. And I always offer that as a value add. So like, even though you didn't choose us, if you want help hiring more talented women, then I can definitely help in those aspects. Absolutely. And that's actually a perfect transition into what I wanted to talk about next, which is your sort of women in fintech and all that. I mean, I know you've started the organization. It's been phenomenally successful. But to do something like that means you must be super passionate about diversity or women in this fintech space. So kind of walk us through the nexus of why you started that and then kind of, you know, where you're at right now with women in fintech and your goals and dreams for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as I like mentioned before, I spent the first 10 years of my career working for large banks. And it was quite frustrating to see male counterparts that were many times not achieving the same level of results as I was um, getting paid more than me or getting promoted above me, usually because of a conversation they had at drinks or on the golf course or somewhere that I was excluded. Um, when I moved into fintech, I realized that the same gender inequality existed and I met my co-founder, um, who had followed a similar path to me. She's brilliant. Her name is Michelle Tran. She spent, um, a decade working for BlackRock and large financial institutions. Then she moved over to Apex. So when I was at the quote when she was at Apex, we had a lot of mutual clients and prospects. Um, we both shared the same passion for female empowerment. And we thought, you know, why not combine this and build a network that can help connect, promote, and empower women to advance their careers? Um, so our first event was just 16 women at a bar on a rainy night in Flatiron. Um, and from there, it just grew exponentially. So uh, we've now done 86 events. We've held events with pretty much every top fintech company, whether that's Adyen, Stash, Payneer, you name it, um, as well as some traditional enterprises. So Deutsche Bank, HSBC. We did a big event at Google. We rang the bell at NASDAQ. And um, our holiday event in December last year was on the New York Stock Exchange floor. So it's been awesome to um, see it grow and to have the support, not only of our 8,000 female members, but all of the male allies um, that are supporting. We don't definitely don't want to be a group of women in the corner complaining. We think that we need <laughs> the help of everyone if we're going to make real change. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, in your wildest dreams, I can't imagine that when you were 16 women in a bar, you'd ever, ever thought you'd be on the NASDAQ and like speaking at Google. I mean, it's incredible to see the journey and, and how you got to where you are. Uh, I wonder, let's think about like the fintech perspective. Do you think there are financial needs uh, that differ by sort of gender? So maybe a woman's financial needs might be different from a man's or anything like that. I'm, I'm trying to understand if there's any um, difference between 
the financial needs and startups for women versus men. Do you think there might be a difference there or it's kind of like we all need financial services? It doesn't really matter. I think that there is a difference and the likes of Elevest and you know, very female-specific fintechs are like evidence that there is a difference um, and that there is a big market for it. Um, that said, I think that there's so many like direct-to-consumer fintechs that are aimed at both men and women and any type of gender um, that benefit from having a diverse employee base in order to ensure that that offering is relevant for the whole market. Um, you know, it's been proven like statistically that companies that have diverse teams perform better and have a more loyal consumer base and are more effective. And, you know, it logically makes sense. If it's just a room of men making decision, then they're not going to have the outcome that a team with different genders, different nationalities, different, you know, perspectives is going to have. Absolutely. And I mean, you've jumped into VC at a very interesting time as well. Um, you know, there's a lot of change in the industry. Everyone's talking about valuations changing. There was a lot of money that flew in, in you know, during the pandemic. Um, and now you've transitioned into this space as one of the few females that are higher up in, in, in a venture capital firm. Uh, but kind of, if, if you take a, a very high level overview of the VC industry. I know you've only been here for a few weeks, but kind of what were your thoughts coming into the industry and where do you kind of see the industry going? Um, and it's okay if it's still relatively high level as well. Yeah, absolutely. So like um, it was amazing to watch how much it did become a founder's world in that like when I was first at Quovo back in 2017, like a, getting funding was like definitely a lot harder and those check sizes were a lot smaller. Um, and then to see it just like change over the years and more, more recently my time at Pinwheel and seeing like the clients and prospects just getting, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars so quickly and easily. It was like such a stark difference. Um, now, obviously the market has turned and we're starting to, see lots of slowdown in terms of number of deals and size of deals. And I think that's a good thing. Like it needed to start to normalize because it was getting a little bit crazy, especially <laughs> in like the crypto space. Um, and this is like an exciting time to be in, in venture because we're going to start to see like who's been swimming naked and like mm. who the who the winners are. Um, and, you know, I'm excited for the M&A activity that's going to happen off the back of that um, and also to, like, come in um, at this time mm -hmm. where, like, yeah, it'll be good. 
Yeah, no, I, it's, it's really interesting. I was looking at the CB Insights report that recently came out and, um, you know, fintech funding is, is down about 19% from last quarter. Um, you look at, you know, average check sizes and deal sizes. You know, the later stage is mostly affected, but the mid and earlier stages, the valuations haven't really changed that much. In fact, in some instances, it's gone up. But if you look at the later stages, it's down drastically. And specifically, when you look at fintech IPOs, um, it's like, Q4 of last year, there were like 27. And then last well, Q1 of 2022 it was down to like seven or something like that. So it was like a precipitous fall in the IPOs and all that. So it seems to be a cascading effect from like the retail uh, public markets to like late stages. And then eventually it'll trickle down to earlier stages. I don't know if you foresee the same thing as well uh, from your purview. Exactly. You just explained it perfectly. I totally agree. Yeah, no, but I love the space as well because kind of the rabbit hole I went into for fintech was um, I was looking at the financial system as a whole, right, which is uh, the Federal Reserve gets to print money and they give that money to certain, you know, industries because they purchase certain, you know, stocks or whatever it is. And then, you know, I, I start to come into uh, these interesting facts like it was like something like 60 to 80% of all US dollars ever printed in history were printed over the last kind of five to 10 years. And you look at the, you know, the amount of money printing and that just inflated asset prices through the roof, which made it harder for the average person to buy a house or to go to college or whatever it is. And I thought, surely there must be a better way to do this. And so that's kind of how I got into the fintech space, started angel investing in startups that were promoting a more inclusive financial system. But I always wonder from your perspective, do you ever think about the financial system as a whole and kind of the way it's constructed? And if so, what are some of the ways you would like to see a change or some of the feelings that, or thoughts you have about the financial system as a whole, as a structure? Yeah. Um, so. Coming from Australia, which is pretty, like, does a pretty good job of, like, making a, a fair system for people. Um, and then coming to the U.S. and learning what it's like here, it was pretty shocking for me, actually. So, like, um, a lot of the clients that I brought on, like, during my time as, a, as an operator in fintech serve the underserved market. So, you know, Chime, Varo, Cash App. The reason like these have to exist is because it's too expensive for a low-income earner to even have a bank account, which is just mind-blowing for me because um, it's not that way in Australia. Like everything's free. Um, so I'm like really grateful and like happy that these fintechs have come along to change the financial system in that way. Um I think that the other things that are great that are coming out of fintech are things like lending. So when I heard about, um, you know, the way the health system works in the US and that if you don't have insurance, like it's extremely expensive and then people that are lower socioeconomic status may have to have the only option of taking out a payday loan or a loan shark in order to pay for a medical bill. And so this whole rise now of alternative credit underwriting is a means of tackling this, this like very important issue. Um, so definitely something that I experienced myself when I first moved to the US and, you know, I 
didn't have any credit. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't get an apartment. I had to pay a guarantor like an additional $6,000 just to like find a roof over my head. It's crazy. Uh, Yeah. And so it's exciting to see that now there's things like Pinwheel that allows for consumers to connect their payroll, whether they get paid from Walmart or Home Depot or Uber or Lyft, and that data then be used by lenders to extend them credit rather than having to rely on a credit score, which, you know, in many cases is non-existent or very, very low. Absolutely. I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask the question that probably multiple people are asking, which is how on earth do Australians afford the high house prices? Because, yeah, I I know that it's very inclusive over there. But when we see the house prices, we're like, whoa, that's insane. I have some friends from New Zealand, too, and all that. But I mean, how did that situation kind of unfold? And how does the average Australian back home actually afford a home? Does the government give them stipends or something? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so you're very much correct. The The housing industry in Australia is very expensive. That said, the socioeconomic gap is so much smaller than mm. it is in other parts of the world, like the US and the UK. Um, so like minimum wage is like $25 or something like that. Oh, wow. um, university is extremely affordable especially if you compare it to the US um so you know it's very easy there's like a much less barrier to getting mm. a university education um and the government does help with um being able to pay that back like out of your income once you do start working um, but it's mm. a fraction of the price of what US universities are um and in terms of being able to be an owner of a home, there are a lot of ways that the government makes it easier. So we have this thing called the First Homeowners Grant where you will get a certain amount of money from the government and you're also exempt from things like stamp duty. Um, So that's how I got my foot in the door. Um, You know, I would never have been able to (laughs) had I not had the support from the government in Australia. So really grateful for that. Absolutely. I'm surprised we don't see more fintech unicorns coming from Australia with such a great sort of financial economic system. I think they're one of the few countries that weathered the last financial storm pretty easily as well. So I guess there's a few things that we can learn from there. Um, probably the most famous uh, fintech or not fintech, but you know, startup I know from Australia or that part of the world. I think Canva is from that part of the world, isn't it? Yeah. Female founder as well. Email founder as well. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully that trend continues, but uh, you know, this has been awesome. I'll kind of keep this short and sweet. Um, but if any of our followers want to find you uh, or contact you on LinkedIn, Twitter, anything like that, what's the best way for them to reach out and perhaps a quick plug on uh, maybe women in FinTech uh, for anyone to, to, to kind of know about. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm really trying to up my Twitter game, but if you don't <laughs> follow me, my name is Sasha FinTech. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, so please do add me. I'd love to connect with you. Um, and please do also follow NYC FinTech women on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, um, and sign up on our website, nycfintechwomen.com. 
we host events every month in New York. Um, we're starting to expand to other fintech hubs as well, like Chicago, Austin, Boston, San Francisco, etc. And we are completely free of charge to become a member and we very much encourage everyone to be a member. So don't, if you're you know, a male ally, like please join. We would love to have you. Um, don't feel intimidated at all. And please come to our events too. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being on the show, Shasha. Yeah. Thanks so much, Saka. It was great to talk to you.